A new book by Chloe Sorvino, the lead journalist covering food, drink, and agriculture at Forbes, takes an in-depth look into the shortcomings and failures of the meat industry in the United States. Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed, and the Fight for the Future of Meat is published by Atria Books and brings Chloe Sorvino to our show now. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, well, this is important stuff. Uh, you begin your book with a description of the impact the uh, COVID-19 pandemic has had on the meat industry. Has it been mostly on the slaughterhouses or throughout the industry? COVID-19 was a catalyzing moment for the entire meat industry and really for the entire food supply chain. You had meat packers telling Americans that they might not see meat in their grocery stores. You said they had them saying the food supply chain was breaking, and yet they were making more profits than ever before, exporting more than ever before, and forcing workers to stay on the line even though they were being put in harm's way. But even before COVID-19, didn't the chairman of Tyson Foods declare that the food supply chain was dangerously vulnerable and that America's meat industry was reaching a breaking point? So what happened? There's been five plus decades of consolidation in the meat industry, and that's over time created mass centralization where only a handful of plants are responsible for the vast majority of the food that gets sent around the country and around the world. And a lot of that's been in part driven by meatpackers lobbying and different trade groups and pushing out, you know, pushing for policies that end up, you know, pushing out smaller players or having them go bankrupt over time. And it, it's all been a bit of a race to the bottom that's impacted everything from how producers are paid to what consumers end up being able to access at the grocery store. So although Americans may have no idea of where their meat comes from, didn't a study from MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, reveal that only three firms control 63% of pig processing in the United States, just two control 46% of cow slaughter, and 38% of chicken processing? <laughs> you it's an cent- astronomical amount. Yeah, you yeah. said uh, you mentioned centralization. Well, uh, is that a totally bad thing? Well, you know, in COVID, for example, we saw how those fragilities are easily exploited and how this makes our entire food system extremely vulnerable. And my book doesn't really go into the pandemic all that much. We really just talk about it in the introduction, this catalyzing moment. And that's because the fear and the supply chain disruptions that did happen during the pandemic are going to be coming down the pipeline again and again as the climate crisis gets worse. And so while, you know, even the next Super Bowl could be on the pandemic and create a new pandemic that that continues to impact our supply chain, these crises aren't just related to the pandemic and the centralization can impact our food, even aside from the climate crisis. Take, for example, in 2021, when JBS, the world's largest meatpacker, was attacked in a, uh, a cyber warfare scandal and nine of their plants were shut down it created serious impacts for the market just in that week alone do we know why it was attacked folks wanted to get money they ended up paying 10 million dollars in bitcoin to get their plants reopened the food supply chain has been targeted actually by some some cyber cyber warfare for for that reason and again it's more vulnerable because there is so much centralization and so few players really doing the mass majority of all the work 
And doesn't the consolidation and the processing stage make food systems more vulnerable to climate change disruptions, outbreaks of disease? Absolutely. So my book talks all about the different ways that meatpacking has made itself more vulnerable over time as it's tried to grow as big as possible, make as much profits as possible. And so climate change, for example, there are so many different ways that climate already impacts the meat industry and how it will continue to impact the meat industry. But take, for example, just the simple act of the earth getting hotter. Now, meatpacking has grown so big so quickly over the past five decades, really because what livestock eat has become entirely different from what they used to eat. And it's a lot of this industrially farmed corn and soy with chemicals and there's a lot of negative ramifications of that from water pollution to air pollution, different soil erosion. But even just the simple act of getting hotter impacts those crops. That's making the crops that industrial meat production relies on less nutritious. It's making them so much harder to farm. And there will be a breaking point when there is so much feed that is so much less nutritious already. And you have to make even more just to keep up this this unsustainable cycle. On another level, when they're in pens, don't cattle produce more methane and contribute to global warming uh, uh, more than when they're out on the range? Absolutely. I mean, the methane issue is a huge problem. And that's one of the biggest reasons that the meatpacking industry has been a driver of already irreversible damage. Full stop. I mean, that alone and the, the increasing amount of methane production. Methane has actually been increasing over the past few years, even when it really needs to be increasing. Methane is a super, super potent greenhouse gas that heats the earth even hotter than other greenhouse gas gases. And we're, as we said, we're contributing to it when we keep cattle in pens. Uh, hasn't there been a move to to keep them out on the range more? To, to cut down on the the amount of methane that's being put into the atmosphere? There is, and there's been a movement to put more cattle out in pasture, get them mm-hmm. off feedlots, get them out of these systems of confinement. But at the same time, at the end of the day, cattle particularly produce a lot of methane. And even if grass-fed beef would substantially increase, that would also then increase methane production. So there has to be a balance with all of this. And there's a lot of trade-offs with any sort of meat, any sort of food. But as the climate crisis gets worse, those trade-offs are going to become more and more into view. And you say poor soil health, environmental destruction, the spread of antibiotic resistance and public health issues in communities are among the concerns being caused by the system that we're working within. Absolutely. Yeah, let's talk about public health. There's many different aspects of the public health threat that industrial meat production poses. But one of the clearest ones is that all this confinement, all of these antibiotics that are fed to these animals, mostly so that they can grow as quickly and as big as possible on the hopes for more efficiency, you know, that has created this system where the next superbug, the next pandemic could start on a factory farm. I mean, it could already even be out there. And well, you know, that is a very real, big realization for a lot of folks to understand. And at the same time, there, there are so many other intricacies there, you know, for a worker. Many workers in meatpacking are 
refugees or immigrants, um, very vulnerable workers um, and marginalized workers. And, you know, a worker who's coming to America, for example, might end up working a meatpacking job only for a few weeks or a few months. And those workers often have no idea that they could contract a superbug just in that first shift even. And one of the craziest things I learned while researching this book is that a superbug can stay in your body forever. Sometimes it's never ignited. Hmm. Sometimes it's ignited only years or decades later. And it could it be just that sits you have... there waiting to, to come alive. Exactly. So maybe, you know, for example, you could get a, some inflammation or a virus or pneumonia decades, decades later in life, and you could be in a hospital and all of a sudden that superbug is ignited. And then all of a sudden your pneumonia spirals downhill extremely quickly. And all of a sudden now you have an antibiotic resistant disease that they're not able to do anything for. And these are, there are many deaths that are barely even categorized like this, but it's happening more and more. I spoke with several uh, anthropologists and entomologists who track the workers and how they're affected. And it's one of the biggest hidden costs to these workers. And, you know, I'm one of the few journals that's been in so many slaughterhouses. I mean, I could have a superbug talking to you right now. <laughs> you don't know. But but also, it, it, the problems are, in factory farms and huge feedlots, aren't they? Because that's where animals consume hyperdense feed chemicals and antibiotics to boost their weight before they're slaughtered. Right. And, you know, meat didn't always get produced this way. The feedlot, this, these confined conditions only really started in 1976. And so then you have the creation of these new types of production coupled with merger mania and this frenzy on Wall Street to profit off of the meat industry, even, you know, in the 1980s. And it really created a mass centralization and a race to the bottom. Now in the pork industry, you have 90% of all production coming from some 30 plants. 60% of all beef production coming from 14 plants. Hmm. And uh, obviously investors don't always value uh, the environment as, as much as they do profit. Is there anybody watching them and trying to correct that situation? There are not enough watchdogs, which is one of the reasons why I really wanted to write about this. I'm the journalist at Forbes who's spent years and years figuring out the net worth valuations for the meat billionaires on our signature lists. And there came some very dark days in the pandemic where I was on the phone and speaking with these folks and hearing about how they couldn't be happy about how when it's raining buckets outside, they're walking around. When it's raining gold outside, they're walking around with buckets. And I figured that I might be the only person, one of the few people who could really share that story when at the same time I was also reading these reports and talking to scientists and hearing the studies and also talking to the workers that were very scared about being pushed on the front lines and at the same time often didn't even have chicken in their freezers. Mm. So they, they weren't paid enough to be able to buy the product that, that they were working on? Correct. And, you know, at the same time you have a lot of this chicken, a lot of this meat getting exported workers not even being sent home with any. Um, so it, it was stark. It's brutal. Lots of situation where really you've seen now financiers underpinning this meat industry, valuing profits over people. We're talking, as you said earlier, black, Latinx, and indigenous, among others. Yeah, you know, there are so many different hidden costs that the meat industry hasn't had to pay for over time. And Everywhere along the way, someone pays a price and 
through history, we've seen that a lot of the negative externalities and the public health issues that can come with living close to meat production are disproportionately impacting those some most marginalized. And that's not okay. There are emerging lawsuits and different um, investigations into environmental injustice for that reason. But aren't all we, all of us paying a price in a way because of consolidation and price fixing? Absolutely. You know, how does just price the, fixing work in, in this industry? Yeah, let's take a step back. So right now you have a situation where there have been some settlements with the federal government, with some meat packers, and then there's also been just hundreds of different lawsuits and class actions over the past decade. Many of those cases have already been settled. Others haven't. And at the end of the day, these cases are going to keep playing out in the courts for years. Tyson in January 2021 set aside some $220 million just to pay out some of these settlements. And so there are many different allegations. There are also wage fixing, wage manipulation allegations that also relate here. But the price fixing allegations stem from different points of allegations of collusion and market manipulation across chicken, pork, and beef. Some of the Biggest lawsuits are in the chicken industry, and many of these lawsuits relate to agri-stats, uh, benchmarking, data-providing tools that almost all of the chicken producers use, and they pay this service to get data. Again, this is just one of many cases, but many of these lawsuits mention agri-stats and how it has been allegedly you know, facilitating collusion through the industry, which has helped the top players control how much they're paying for chickens from their producers. All the different financial details or different numbers that end up at the end of the day having chicken production evolving into how to make the most money on a spreadsheet. And so the Department of Justice, I will say, investigated agri-stats between 2010 and 2012 and they completed their investigation after finding 385,000 documents and never um, never suggested any findings or changes. And Agrisat's never been charged with anything. At the same time, though, it continues to play on the courts. And there are all these different allegations of how corporations, executives paid the least possible to producers while also at the same time bidding up prices for where they were selling them to retailers, restaurants, other purchasers. And, you know, th- these lawsuits come from some of the biggest names in the food industry, from McDonald's to Kraft Heinz to ConAgra to Nestle, Wawa. Almost every retailer or major restaurant chain that exists today has filed one of these lawsuits. I've always thought of chickens as being a, a, a family industry, but obviously that's not true. No, you know, the only real one that has independence these days is beef and pork also to some extent. And all of these independent processors processors have been really squeezed out over time. But chicken has always been the one that works with the most long-term contracts and has the most contract growers and has the most corporations like Tyson uh, really uh, directly dictating how all those chickens are being grown. And that's also because chicken is the newest industry, the beef industry and pork industry in the country are far older. Chicken really started just in post-war America. Um, beef rations and pork rations really increased 
chicken and in a way that, you know, hadn't really been a major part of diets before then. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI is Chloe Sorvino of Forbes magazine. She's written a book called Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed, and the Fight for the Future of Meat from Atria Books. And this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Now, problems in this area are nothing new. Upton Sinclair's novel, The Jungle, was a bestseller in 1906. And uh, it led to legislation, didn't it? What happened? Yes, collusion and allegations of market manipulation in the meat industry are almost a tale as old as time. In 1890, you have the Sherman Antitrust Act. In 1921, you have the Packers and Stockyards Act, all coming out of this need to try to balance out the power and how there has just been this push for the industry a race to the bottom over over these cycles to have fewer and fewer players at the top and yeah you mentioned upton sinclair you know his 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 book came out when he was just 28 and it's important that he said it was fiction most folks don't actually understand that but it drove major uh momentum to make real change and yet at the same time nothing of none of that None of these reforms have gone far enough because still now we're a hundred years later and they're still top four in every sector controlling huge swaths. And I want to be clear because antitrust experts talk about how if the top four players in a major industry are dominated by 20 to 25 percent in total across those four, that's what's understood to be mass mass consolidation and so, Wait, beef, so know, it doesn't matter whether i'm getting that beef at mcdonald's or at my local butcher it might very well be coming from one of the same uh, original companies i mean your burger might have a hundred from cows or, or cattle in that one but yes almost everything you're getting at a restaurant or a grocery store is coming from these top players very 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 little is mm. outside of that supply chain now, uh, the the jungle led President Teddy Roosevelt to send his labor commissioner to Chicago to investigate the meatpacking facilities, which led ultimately to the passage of the Meat Inspection Act of 1906 and the Pure Food and Drug Act, and then there were amendments added later. Um, so people were aware, have been aware for a long time that there have been problems in this industry, and yet... We, you, you are writing a book that says there are incredible problems right now. What's happened? The, the hidden costs are often too gruesome for some to understand or to really spend time thinking about. And that's why I wanted to start this book off with the pandemic, because at the same time, it was such an emotional moment for so many. But also at this point, two years later, it's starting to already fade. What happened to those workers? What happened to those animals that ended up getting killed on their farms because they couldn't make it to a slaughterhouse? That all, you know, it's fading from our memory. And that's exactly why I wanted to write this book because there are so many hidden costs and Americans don't like knowing where their food comes from. And that's what's hurting so many Americans, it's hurting animals, it's hurting the producers, it's hurting the workers, and it's hurting the consumers. Despite government regulators, doesn't the industry pollute waterways and, uh, as you mentioned earlier, exhaust farmland? 
water pollution is one of the biggest, most important ramifications of how meatpacking has been hurting the environment. The Clean Water Act in particular has been eaten away at over time, in part because many meatpackers and trade groups and organizations have been lobbying to strip away protections on the local, on the federal level, but this has also happened on state level, local level. There's a patchwork of these regulations that don't do enough to actually protect our water from the dumping and just all of the different ways that water is polluted. But again, this is completely hidden. And this is one of the, also the other ways that while what's being dumped sewage, different types of uh, wastewater, essentially. I mean, there's a lot of water that's used even just at these slaughterhouses to clean the animals, feces. There's, I, I don't want to get too gross here. Again, I've been in a lot of these slaughterhouses. It's okay but as it's, long as you use the right words and the FCC doesn't give me a hard time. <laughs> we want to know. Okay. Well, no, I mean, there's, it, it, it hits a lot of levels, but Wastewater would be a big example, you know, just the feathers or the wet fur. I, I, uh, I also, when you actually kill some of these animals, it's, it's quite messy. Sometimes the machinery does a bad job and sometimes there are feces on the meat or they have to be washed down. Uh, there's also lots of different chemicals used to clean the meat at different, different stages of slaughter. And then all that is then also you know, push through wastewater and then has to get um, eventually taken care of. But wastewater treatment as it is in many municipalities across the country are at dangerously low levels and, and aren't doing enough to clean water as it is. And so meatpackers often have to do it themselves. And that's where you get some of the gray area. And you're suggesting there's a need in this country for stronger environmental enforcement, not just on the federal level, also on state and local levels. Absolutely. And that's especially in places like Iowa, where it's one of the biggest pork producers in the country and it's got some of the worst water pollution and some of the it's the biggest contributor to the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, which comes from industrial pollution from agriculture and a lot of other causes. And so, you know, you have a state like that where business has been preferred, simple as that. And so because a lot of these regulations end up having to actually happen and be enforced and implemented on these super, super local levels where often there's a revolving door or business interests having a very clear ability to influence. Um, that's where you've seen a lot of the problems occurring. Meanwhile, American farmers and meat processors benefit from government subsidies and tax breaks. Billions. And it's, it's truly one of the ways where, again, people talk about how meat is too expensive, but at the same time, it's actually in many ways too cheap. And that's because meat packers have been able to shunt some of the costs down the line and not have to pay for the water pollution or the public health concerns that come with spreading antibiotic resistance, or even just, you know, how, again, if you're, if you're growing up and pregnant even around some of these hog production facilities in North Carolina, for example, there are several lawsuits in different cases where there are birth defects, there's asthma, there are very, very real causes, health causes that come from simply living where you've lived forever and then having a factory farm come up in your backyard. 
So you say you'd like to see U.S. farm bill funding or other government support going to underrepresented farmers and also to rebuilding local food infrastructure? Absolutely. Land access should be a huge, huge priority for this farm bill. We also really need to talk seriously about re-regionalizing the food system. This book really goes into how we have seven years left really to make a significant change. And this change needs to happen now because by the time 2030 rolls around, the climate crisis is going to be so bad that we need to work out the kinks now. And this farm bill is going to be for the next five years of funding. So these five years are probably some of the most important years possible to figure out ways to better incentivize better, more sustainable farming. I mean, talk about subsidies again. Simple, simple thing like how farmers right now who are not incentivized to farm sustainably. Corn, soybean farmers that are chemically farming don't even have to have simple requirements for cover crops in their off season. That would be a very easy way if folks who are supported by subsidies have to also engage in in cover crops or other types of sustainable farming practices like no-till. That would be a clear way to already align incentives far better. So since... uh Correcting the situation would help everybody uh, across the political spectrum, for example. Why are we running into roadblocks uh, when it comes to proposed legislation? You have livestock produced in every single state, which means there are senators, there are Congress folk being called every single day from different producers or these corporate interests, which, again, have spent a lot of time and money accumulating wealth and power and then reinvesting all that wealth and power back into protecting themselves with lobbying with different state local regulations which often are more effective than some of the federal regulations even and so there's even just 200 million dollars alone spent on environmental lobbying in the past few years there's it really can't be understated how deeply entrenched the meat industry and its trade groups are in Washington and across the country, especially in these areas where they've amassed power over the past few decades. And you're right, and I'm quoting, meat production has been a staple of the American economy, culture, and diet for generations, but industrial agriculture that values profits over people and the environment is careening toward a food-insecure future. We're facing food insecurity? I mean, alone, how much corn and soy is being forced to livestock Mm. that uh, one day, truly, I mean, we're already having harvest issues. Harvest productions are already down this year because half the country has been in extreme drought and there's been more extreme heat than most other harvests in the past, you know, century. And so there's that. But then there's also this misalignment that continues to emerge and it's becoming a national security threat there's already 40 million americans that are food insecure 13 million children and at the same time you're seeing wealth hoarded by select few you're seeing foreign billionaires coming in to the country and acquiring huge amounts of farmland i write also about how there's a significant foreign ownership of meat packers and at the same time those are often the meat packers that are polluting and are then shipping meat abroad while 
degrading environment locally. And so there has been, we've, we've been careening towards this system where accessibility is everything. And we need to make sure there's a future that ensures that sustainable, good food is available to all. And right now it's not. And you, and you say there's been a lot of what's called greenwashing. Can you explain? On all levels, yes. And so even just take grass-fed. There are so many different types of grass-fed labels, or sometimes you'll, you're seeing pasture-raised labels now. But grass-fed even can mean just so many different things. And there needs to be a far better job done of making sure these labels are actually validated and what's on them is actually accurate. But grass-fed, depending on what's actually printed, it could be grass-finished. It could still be actually coming from a feedlot. Some of these grass-fed animals that you're seeing now selling at some of the major grocery stores, that, that those brands are actually feeding their livestock still in factories of confinement. They're just feeding them grass-based pellets. And so... But and, but they can say grass fed because exactly if you get the it's literally image true even if it roaming. isn't what we imagine. Yeah, so you get the image of roaming the grasses, but really they're still in these feedlots, just eating pills with grass in them. Oh boy, uh, this is WBAI New York ninety nine point five FM streaming live at WBAI dot org. Cowpokes come from the near and far when you throw a few red eyes on the far. Roberta Duran ain't two before a five tells it gives a mighty man of a lot of mighty mine. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Chloe Sorvino. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed, and the Fight for the Future of Meat. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation, the name of Linda Lopez at large, and we thank you very much. And return to Chloe Savino, again, the name of the book, Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed, and the Fight for the Future of Meat from Adria Books. Uh, Ms. Savino leads the coverage of food, drink, and agriculture at Forbes magazine. She, or the, the, I guess Forbes in general, and her work has been featured by NPR, Women's Wear Daily, Financial Times, and others. Uh, and uh, I I'm, want to get back to uh, ways that people are uh, dealing with this. Aren't mm-hmm. some investors capitalizing on climate change by promoting alternative proteins? There's been billions of dollars funding, fueling into this movement that's emerging for plant-based foods and alternative proteins, lab-grown meat. Uh, and there's been huge expectations, lots of investor frenzy, lots of pressure. And unfortunately, what you actually have seen, especially with plant-based meat, like Impossible and Beyond in this country, is that uh, although there were huge expectations and massive business valuations, 
these products really hadn't been selling at the stores. No one's buying them repeat. Very few are anyway. And there's been mismatch. And now we have a, a bubble that's really gone bust. Meat alternatives account for just 0.2% of, uh, counted anyway, for just 0.2% of 2020 grocery meat sales. So we're talking about a small amount. Uh, has it gotten any larger in the two years since? We're still at less than 1%. And that's why I wanted to write this book about the meat industry's power and profits and then also discussing these alternatives because there are hordes of these startup founders drooling over the idea of dethroning industrial meat. But at the end of the day, the top meat packers are just continuing to control massive amounts of profits and power while these, these startups are fighting it out at the bottom. And there's been a lot of copycats, a lot of money that's now been wasted. Um, but you haven't seen the adoption. I mean, where it, 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 the Impossible Whopper launched at Burger King, for example, and it still is less than 5% of total burger sales. And with plant-based meat at less than 1% of total meat, we just really need significant change. We need to actually have a significant chunk taken out. The book talks about if actually 15% of the meat industry was plant-based meat, it would be significantly better for the environment. It'd be the equivalent of taking off roughly a quarter of all cars off the road in America. Again, super significant. But right now, you're not seeing anywhere close to that. Didn't Bill Gates once suggest that people in wealthy nations should only eat synthetic meat? Uh, was he being serious? He was being very serious. And that comment was problematic in many ways, but it also particularly ignored the generations of pastoralism around the world, indigenous groups that rely on meat or the cultural significance of certain types of animals in different places. But at the end of the day, you know, um, this book is not saying that people should be going vegan. And I think part of the problem with framing that in that way is then that industrial meat isn't really being addressed and the fundamental change that still needs to happen there isn't even a part of the conversation. Do consumers have any real choice at all? How can uh, a consumer be a good meat activist? Meat makes it really hard. And I think it's one of the most important ways where we can try to vote with our dollars, but even that concept has been kind of beaten over the heads over many folks over the years. And at the end of the day, it is a bit of a false messiah. We really can't determine what we eat when access really is driven at the end of the day by these subsidies and these billionaires who are really making most of the market. But we can take an active role in how we get our food and what that means. And the best way to do it really is to make sure that the dollar you're spending money, the dollar you're spending on meat, that that dollar is going towards as as few hands as possible. It's getting towards that producer as much as possible. It's supporting the systems of production that are better to support communities and will help us all so, withstand crisis and dignity. So you say on a more fundamental level, we really need to regionalize the food system. So you're suggesting mm -hmm. that we try to buy local. How would I even know? Uh, in New York City, what local is. Right. What is buy local? I talk even a lot about 
how farmers markets can be a false messiah in the book and how it's a way for people to feel really good about their purchases. But at the end of the day, it's still not financially sustainable often for the farmers and the workers aren't getting overtime or probably even healthcare. And so I write a lot about how community supported agriculture shares, CSAs, farm shares, and particularly farm shares that have overlapping networks, like a food hub, a network of their, you know, regional producers where they're able to ship to you or, you know, leverage the costs of getting food into packaging and processing and getting it to the person. It's those systems that are the best. And most of that dollar is being felt by the producer in this system that at the end of the day, again, is supporting the community. Well, farmers markets often offer processed meats that are made by locals. But uh, it's been pointed out, research uh, has shown that foods like bacon, ham, hot dogs, and salami can be linked to cancer. I don't know how much you have to eat for there to be a problem, but um, hasn't that been a concern? Absolutely. And it's not that much. I mean, based on what the suggestions are, if you eat bacon twice a week, that's where you start getting some of that cancer risk, for example, according to the studies. Really? Twice a week? I've done that in, in the past. I haven't been doing it recently, but uh, it's not because right. I was afraid of cancer. Right. So one one bacon, one sausage. I mean, that is, mm. again, just an example. But it's clear to see how that could, in in one week, be be, be put on your plate. But... That's part of the reason why there are these massive accessibility issues in me and how even SNAP dollars, food assist, aid assistance, those dollars are almost, you know, completely skewed and mostly going towards meat, but often what they're able to afford are processed meats. And so that's part of the reason why you see, again, some of this, this risk, the cyclical risk happening, because not only do you have a system where people are already hungry and are trying to access healthy foods, but they can't. And what they can access is making them even more unhealthy. That's why there are most people that Feeding America services, for example, have significant health issues like diabetes or heart disease. Are other countries around the world facing similar problems? Meat production is continuing to increase around the world and full stop. That's the big issue. Um, but no one eats more meat than Americans. It's more than double what an average European would eat. And do we import meat from other countries? Absolutely. And another where place where you're seeing some greenwashing is in some of the more ethically marketed startups, box subscription services that you see, you know, like on an Instagram or online. And often their grass fed meat or the grass fed beef is coming from South America because those producers, they are able to produce it at a cheaper price point than U.S. producers. So meat from Mexico might be a good idea. A lot of it's coming in right now from Chile, um, Uruguay, um, parts of, you know, Argentina, even Brazil is obviously a big uh, place where well, there's Argentina a lot of beef coming major, from. Argentina has a major cattle uh, owned, uh, production, so I'm not surprised. But I, I am uh, I would think that just shipping it would add an incredible amount to the cost of the meat. 
And that's how cheap it's produced. And, but there again are then environmental questions around, is it really worth it? Is it, is it okay to not be supporting something local? And then just because of price and, and, and profit to, to be shipping and, and still taking on significant emissions that way. You also note that there's foreign ownership of uh, a lot of meat companies. Is that a serious problem? Take, for example, Smithfield, which is owned by the Chinese conglomerate WH Group, founded by Wen Long, one of the billionaires there. And Smithfield was one of the largest ever foreign acquisitions in America when it was acquired in 2013. And WH Group now controls around 30 percent or just under 30 percent of the entire pork market in the U.S., and at the same time in the pandemic, they had workers suing like a Jane Doe class action I write about to try to make sure that the CDC guidelines were actually being put in place in these massive plants. And they were not. Um, but at the same time, Smithfield continued to export more than 25 percent more than the year before. And at the same time, while take not taking into consideration the climate ramifications in the local area. And so there's just this mismatch of, of misincentives emerging, especially with you when you get foreign ownership, or even when you talk about how much farmland Bill Gates has as the top private farmland owner in the country. So do you believe a certain percentage of national food suppliers should be local companies, locally owned entities, if only for reasons of national security? <laughs> I'm a journalist, and so I'm not necessarily saying that, you know, there has to be a policy perspective, you know, policy restraints on this, but there are a lot of laws and, and different bills right now talking about how to limit foreign ownership of farmland for a similar reason. And I see other types of limits on exports, especially when you talk about like wild fishing in around Alaska and, and further north. And so I do see a precedent for the ability to limit exports from foreign owners. My guest is Chloe Sorbino. Her book, Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed, and the Fight for the Future of Meat is published by Atria Books. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Senator Cory Booker wants to stop taxpayer payer bailouts for big meat with his industrial agricultural or agriculture accountability act that would increase the legal responsibility among industrial meat packers to pay up for the true costs uh, of, of wastes and stuff. What's your view of the bill? He's put out a lot of bills as have others. And while I'm always in favor of more enforced accountability and transparency for the meatpacking industry, I think it really, at the end of the day, it all matters about what the actual teeth are and how that is actually able to be enforced. Well, it, it hasn't been able to get through Congress. And, and will it ever? I'm not sure. Unless, and I don't know if I'd hold my breath on that. Yeah. I will say, though, that Senator Cory Booker has recently spoken. You know, last week he talked about how he would love a moratorium put on factory farming. And that necessarily wasn't in that bill, but it would be a significant way to quell some of the issues, especially with factory farming and the rising antibiotic resistance. In the final section of your book, you propose a few solutions. You want to lay some of them out for us? Absolutely. So re-regionalizing the food system is the big one. Infrastructure needs to be strengthened now. 
that's why I talk about the farm bill and these next five years, these next eight years being the time to make this change because we don't have enough time to waste and throw money at the wrong solutions. And there will come a point where we're not really able to make the reforms we need anymore. And so creating a system, we, there used to be so many more canneries and simple types of plants or working kitchens where local purveyors could use or rent out to ha- help them get their food out in the marketplace with somewhat more convenience while, you know, not needing as many additives or some of the big processing that uh, big food has required over the years because they need to have so much self-stabilization and all these other things because Walmart says so and what have you. And so re-regionalizing, strengthening these local food systems, which will help communities with sand crisis and dignity as the climate crisis gets worse. That's the most important thing, full stop. We need to do that by incentivizing and better supporting marginalized farmers, increasing land access, but then also talking about the governance of these startups and of the big meat packers and, and, and taking a hard look at why some of them aren't B Corps or tax registered benefit corps, all of the alternative proteins as well. And then, you know, I also then write a bit about a public food sector and what universal food access could look like. I work at Forbes, obviously the capitalistic magazine, but there are clear market-driven solutions that could be put into the system as it is, which would help to feed people, especially as hurricanes hit or extreme heat makes crops fail. And, you know, it could look like, could look like a lot of different things, but at the end of the day, I hope folks consider why food is not a public right, but healthcare is, education is, and even water is. Is one of your suggestions that we should just eat less meat? <laughs> Absolutely. That is, that is, I hope, the main takeaway. More meat cannot be produced. We need to eat less meat. Global consumption, global demand for meat needs to go down and factory farming that pollutes animals in confinement that needs to come to an end. We need to really rethink how our plates look, but it doesn't necessarily have to mean no meat. There is a place for meat in the future. It just looks completely different. Well, there are a fair number of people who have decided to become vegans, but it has nothing to do with what you're writing about. And I, I'd imagine that if you'd written a book about the problems in the agricultural industry in general, you have, would have found some similar problems. Absolutely. I mean, you know, when I was younger growing up, I'll be honest, I was nicknamed Mickey D's on my club sports team because I was eating that many McNuggets in between the tournament games. But I have completely changed how I eat food today and grow mushrooms in my apartment, which I talked about a little bit in the book. And whenever I am sourcing meat these days, it's coming from a farm that I've completely interrogated to know how every little detail about how they make their food Obviously, there comes a certain level of access and privilege with that because it takes a lot of time to put the effort and the research in to figure out what isn't isn't greenwash. But I'm supporting my food hub. I'm supporting my local CSA. And, you know, I never feel more optimistic than when I'm working a shift at my CSA or, you know, when the truck breaks down from the farm and then all of a sudden we're all there waiting for the shipment to come in and trucks there. And we're all one by one down the line, passing boxes and trying to get where we need our food to go. Um, and those are the moments that remind me how we'll be able to survive as the climate crisis gets worse. Is it easy to grow mushrooms in your apartment? 
It's super therapeutic and quite easy. I write in the book about how I bought some super sketchy spores off the internet a bunch of years ago, and I would not recommend doing that. It can be very, very dangerous, but there are now, thanks to the pandemic, many of these mushroom growers that actually are selling grow bags that already have the spores inoculated for you, which takes out some of the danger. And right now, all you can buy online. There's a few purveyors, or in New York City, there's small hold, and you score, you cut an X into different parts of the bag, and then you just spray it with water. And in a few days, you have mushrooms growing from these bags. And it's it's a beautiful thing to behold. We only have a couple of minutes left, but I was wondering about what, uh, whether there were some other things that surprised you a lot when you were working on the book. Too many to count. Um, but what I will share is that there is not enough folks talking. I think a lot of Americans who eat meat believe that the meat packers are really trying and going above and beyond to make sure meat will be there in 2050. But really what's happening is the exact opposite. There are test projects on tiny, tiny, tiny percentages of total volume of these companies. You know, Tyson's looking at, you know, pilots uh, for different feed projects on, you know, less than 5% of their total acreage, which is not the time. We have, again, only a few years left and we need these corporations to take on more risk because they've taken, they've been taking a risk with a lot of Americans' health and taking a risk with the environment. But we'll see. We'll see what the rubber meets the road. There are a lot of Congress folk and, and different consumer groups that are super excited about what Raw Deal is all about. And I'm excited to have the meatpackers engage in it more. Well, it seems to me that the people who can have the most impact would be our politicians. But uh, depends on whether, as you pointed out earlier, depends on where the politician is from. If the politician is from a, an agricultural state, he or she would be less likely to want to really change things very much. And that is having a negative effect. And, and well, honestly, I don't even know if we have the time to make full overhaul change. And the point that I try to make is that we, we don't have enough time to start from scratch, which is why these top meat packers have to do the work and the workers at these corporations. It's their job. It's a call to action for them to be the squeaky wheels making change happen at these extremely bureaucratic places that have amassed so much power structurally across the country and the financial systems. I've been speaking with Chloe Savino. Her book, Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed, and the Fight for the Future of Meat from Atria Books. Anything you want to add before uh, we say goodbye? I'm thrilled to get this conversation out there. The food system needs change, and now is the time. We don't have enough time to waste. And I thank you so much for being on our show. It's been a great pleasure and an eye-opening conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime. Happy to have it. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcast. And if you'd like to write to me, 
My email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. That's L-E-O-N-A-R-D-L-O-P-A-T-E at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI. We are um, undergoing some financial difficulties, paying uh, our rent, actually, and also paying for the tower uh, that we need to broadcast our shows. Uh, and, and because we rely 100% on listener support, we don't take foundation grants. We don't uh, run ads. Uh, I used to be in another part of public broadcasting where we call them funding credits, but they actually were ads. We don't do that. We're 100% reliant on our listeners. But that means that we need you to come through for us. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and the number 2WBAI.org or 212 212- 209-2950. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of London Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book that we have been discussing, Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed, and the Fight for the Future of Me by Chloe Sorvino. So, why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to WBAI or to give to WBAI.org. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm getting a little choked up here. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. Uh, you could do that at a level of $10 a month, $15 a month, $20, however much you can afford. And that allows us to plan for the future, and we really would hope that you would consider that. We will say thank you with a WBAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But however you become a member, I hope you'll call right now, because as I said, BAI relies 100% on listed donations. Uh, if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopez at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do in this show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with the tax-deductible support. And we hope you can join us again tomorrow when our favorite language experts, Kathy and Ross Petras, will be joining us. We'll see you then. Thank you.